right. Good morning. Are we ready to get into the Bible now? Yeah? We're ready to get to? All right. Let's get going. We're going in 1 Peter. Uh, we started a series last week. Justin did a, uh, the opening talking about 1 Peter uh, and through the lens of being forged and this idea that what we go through in life is, is developing us into the kinds of people that God desires for us to be. And, uh, and so we're looking at this letter where the early church, uh, early Christians were going through some stuff and how God uh, is using those environments to help form them into uh, who they need to be. And so 1 Peter is a letter that we're walking through these ideas out of. And so um, it's my turn to kind of take a section of this uh, letter and break it down for us a little bit. And, uh, but before I get into some of that, uh, let's, let's look back a little bit because Justin did a great job of sharing some of the context and a little bit of the history of, of what's happening in this letter. Um, Peter is writing, and Peter's not writing theology. Peter's writing to people that are going through things, and through it, he explains what is their theology, what they believe about God, but is not writing theology. We look at it today, and we can pull from it Truths that are theologically sound and that we can uh, understand. Um, but back then, Peter is just recognizing that while he's in Rome, Christians have been running and fleeing the city. They've been fleeing their homes, not only in Rome, but in other provinces as well. And they have found themselves in modern-day Turkey, which is where the letter is addressed to so Peter, who is back at Rome, is writing to these people who have fled their homes, left their businesses, left their families on the run, and have wound up in Turkey, and Peter's trying to encourage them. He's trying to help them. This is a very practical, real letter that was written to real people who lived at that time. And so it's easy for us sometimes to take it and kind of make it this like head theological thing. But I want us to remember these are real people. These are real people. Suffering for Christ. And suffering comes in a lot of different ways. Justin explained last week some of the writings of Tacitus, who was a Roman uh, historian, and some of the egregious things that happened under Emperor Nero, and things like they would be crucified and used as, as torches, lit on fire to light the roads. Uh, they would be put in the, in the games, in the Colosseum games, and, and dogs would chase them around. Like, all sorts of, like, horrific stuff. Like, the, the stuff we, we read and we go, that's, that's insane that that happened. But persecution also came in many other different ways. That's like the, the, like the most egregious way that, that, that Christians suffered. There were other ways that Christians suffered as well that wasn't as much about being tortured, but, but about um, being rejected by your community and by your family. You see, to become a Christian, you had to accept and believe that there is only one God. And that that one God demands all of your worship and all of your praise and all of your life. That there is no room for other deities. He is the one true living God, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of lords. And all your worship goes to him. And that was problematic in the first century if you lived uh, during this time. You see, 
If you had a job, um, you were most likely a part of what's called a guild. A guild, uh, a guild is a, a, a group of people that are, that, it's like a trade association. So whatever trade you're in, you have this association, and every month you would get together with your guild. And you would talk about the, the work that's happening, the business. Um, you would do business with each other, and, and uh, you would also uh, eat meals together. You would share in festivals together. You would worship, sacrifice to the God of your city. Every city in the, in the Roman, uh, uh, every Roman providence had a God of that city, and, and you would worship to that, you would sacrifice to that, and you would share a meal together, and you would talk business. Now, imagine that you, uh, at one point, used to go to these, these uh, trade association meetings all the time, and you were there, and you were fellowshipping, but now you've accepted Jesus, and now you're not willing to sacrifice to the gods at, at the temples in these meetings, so you stop going to the meetings. And all of a sudden, people are like, your, your friends are like, where's Joe at? What, what happened? Well, I heard Joe accepted this this christ thing he's a christian now and he's not coming anymore so it was problematic socially because you would be removed from your like what helps your job be successful but it was more than that every city worshiped and sacrificed to gods various different gods multiple different gods and you would sacrifice to those gods to get their favor and blessing on your job on your family, and on your city. And so imagine all of a sudden now, you're not just simply not going to the trade association meetings, you're now not worshiping to the God that's actually protecting your city. So now you're putting at risk all the other inhabitants of that city because the God may get angry that you didn't sacrifice, and you're getting blamed now for the things that are happening because if you'd just gone and sacrificed, that God wouldn't be angry and this bad thing wouldn't have happened. So you're, you're causing jeopardy on the city to be a Christian. And then not only that, you're affecting the very commerce, business, and trade of that city. There's an interesting story Luke tells us in Acts chapter 15 about a guy named Demetrius. And Demetrius was a silversmith, and he lived in Ephesus. And when Paul was preaching in Ephesus, lots of people were coming to accept Jesus and they stopped going to the temples to offer sacrifices. And so Demetrius, Luke tells us, gets really upset at this and gets all other, the other trades uh, associations together and they start having conversations about what are we going to do? Because if this keeps happening, no one's going to buy my idols that I'm making. It's affecting my livelihood, my job. People aren't coming to the temple anymore and buying my trinkets, my idols. The silversmith says. And he gets everybody so upset at the potential threat of their business, a riot breaks out in Ephesus, and they kick Paul out of the city. Acts chapter 15, read it. This is the very real thing to become a Christian you're faced with. Not only that, but all of a sudden rumors would begin to spread about you as a Christian. So now you're losing your your friends at work, you're jeopardizing, people get mad at you because the gods may get angry with them because you're not sacrificing anymore. And now you're affecting business because people aren't coming to buy the things they need to do, the sacrifices. So you're getting rejected by your community, your friends. But then all of a sudden, rumors start happening about you. Rumors are an interesting thing. People start spreading lies about you because they don't know what you're up to. 
kind of like a new thing. And they're like, what are these guys doing? There's an interesting writing by a man named Octavius in the second century. He uh, was a Roman lawyer who became a Christian and then began to defend Christianity. Okay? And he's writing about his, what he believed about Christians prior to becoming a Christian. So he's telling, he's a Christian now, and he's telling people, he became a huge apologist uh, in the second century, a huge, huge advocate for Christianity. And he writes this letter, and in it, this is what he says. He says, accept it from us, as from people who remember with sorrow their own attitude. Right? So he's reflecting back like, man, that, I, I treated them really bad. He says, how unfair it is to pass judgment without knowledge and examination of the facts, right? So he's self-reflecting. Man, I passed a lot of judgment on these people, and I didn't know what they were doing, right? So he goes on to say this. We once believed that Christians worshipped monsters, devoured infants, and joined in incestuous banquets. Now, those are some pretty interesting claims, and for us today, we would go, man, that's weird, like worship monsters and, and ate infants and, and had these incestuous banquets, which um, back then they, they would have get-togethers every week, the Christians, and they would call them love feasts, which is simply mean brotherly love. We come together to celebrate together and we would eat together, but they were called love feasts. So an outsider looking at it is going, you're doing what? You know, love feasts? And then like eating the flesh of infants, like eating babies, what are you talking about? Well, what's one thing that we do every week here? We take communion. So did they. And in communion, we believe that we're participating in the body of Jesus in the bread and his blood and sacrifice in the cup. And so you hear these, these stories of them eating flesh of, of their Lord and drinking his blood. So rumors began to spread about you. Now, all of a sudden, these rumors are spreading and people are talking about you and looking at you. You're walking down the road, heading somewhere, and people are like, there's that guy that eats babies, right? Pliny the Younger, writing just at the turn of the first century, uh, he's writing to Trajan the emperor because he came across some Christians and he wanted to know what to do with them. And this is how he categorizes Christians after he investigates what they believe. Uh, Pliny the Younger, he says this, but I discovered nothing else but depraved, excessive superstitions. Depraved, excessive superstitions is the accusation against Christians. What they believe, they thought they were crazy. They're even called in some ancient writings atheists because they didn't believe in the gods of the Roman Empire. They were literally called atheists because they refused to accept the worship of them. So rumors, right, would spread. Trials and suffering comes in all different forms. It's not all just the big, like, death and, and hairy thing. It's all, it comes in the rejection of your family for them. It came in the rumors and superstition. And so they began to flee because the outbreak of, of um, you know, their, uh, the way that people treated them was so severe, they left. They left their homes and they fled. And they wound up in Turkey, which is where we pick up in Peter's writing. So, to withstand, here we go, here's the fundamental argument that we're going to make this morning, and it's going to ring true throughout the entire message, but we're going to start with the big take-home, okay? And then we're going to build upon that. 
To withstand what you face in life, your identity needs to be solid. Your identity. Peter is building a case in these passages for your identity, both individually and corporately. And corporately. Without this foundation, we're not able to withstand what comes our way. From verses, chapter 1, verse 12, which is where we're starting, all the way to chapter 2, verse 12, is the section we're going to sit in. Now, I'm not going to read all of it because, well, you've been here long enough. You can stick with me, hopefully. But uh, we're going to break down some key areas. There are three main movements that Peter makes, and they all build on each other. He makes one movement, one argument, and then he builds on that. Which, so without this one, you can't have this one. And so there's three main movements that he's leading them through in this section of Scripture that we're going to examine uh, briefly this morning. So, but it all comes down to who we are. Your identity, both individually and corporately, is going to help you withstand the trials that you face. Movement one, what you were and what Christ has done. This is central for Peter. He, has to, he, he reminds them of what Christ has done for them. Um, in verse 17, we're going, to, we're going to jump ahead here. Well, in verse 13, he builds the argument that you need to be holy. So it's a call to be holy in verse 13. He says, uh, verse 16, for the scriptures say you must be holy because I am holy. And the call to holiness, right? This idea that I'm going to live a holy life. Peter begins to break down this argument that why should we be holy, right? That's the question. Why should I do this? Why should I change my behavior and follow the way of Jesus? What's compelling me to do that? Because it's not always easy. It's not always simple. And sometimes it's disruptive, i.e. we've left our homes, it's that disruptive. So why should I continue to do this? The call to live a holy life and the drive to do so is led through gratefulness of what Christ has done in and through you. So for Peter, he's making the argument here in the next, this next breakdown that the call to holiness is because you are grateful. You recognize what Christ has done for you and in gratefulness and thankfulness, you actually pursue him. And we often miss this point. Because we think Christianity is about the rules that we do. Like, that, that's an accusation. It's like, oh, it's just a long list of things that we do. Listen, yes, there are things that we do as the people of God. But if that's all it is to you, you are missing out on what God actually has for you. And you have no hope of actually living it out. You need to understand what Christ has done, the thankfulness and the gratitude of what Christ has done. In verse uh, uh, 19 through 21, uh, this is called a Christological confession. It's Peter's Christological confession, which is to say this next statement that we're about to read is the outworking, confessional outworking of the gospel. So when you accept the gospel, this is the byproduct from it. It's called a Christological confession. He says in verse 19, it was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless lamb of God. God chose him as your ransom long before the world began, but now in these last days, he has been revealed um, for your sake. Verse 21, through Christ, you have come to trust in God and you have placed your faith and hope in God because he has raised Christ from the dead and gave him great glory. Verse 22, which I don't have up on your screen, says this, you were cleansed from your sins when you obeyed the truth. So now, you must show sincere love to each other as brothers and sisters love each other deeply with all your heart. Verse 23 even goes as far to say, for you have been born again to a new life. You've been cleansed from your sins. When we come to Jesus, we come um, 
oftentimes with our baggage and the things that weigh us down in the dirt and the grime of life, and we often come like this bowl that has things in it, and it doesn't look like much um, because it's, it's dirty and it's, it's full of things that we bring to it. And when we, we often make the mistake to think that the purpose of what Christ did was to simply take the bowl, us, and get us closer to him. And although that does happen, there's something much more deep and profound in the work of Jesus that we often overlook. Jesus just doesn't see us as this dirty bowl full of things. He goes, I think there's something more valuable there than what you see. And he goes, there's something special here. And what he does is he begins to remove all the dog toys from my backyard. He begins to remove things out of us and he goes, no, that bowl, it's serving a purpose. It's holding the dog toys but, the, but there's something more important about this bowl. There's something more valuable than just what it's currently doing. And so it begins to see something that we often don't see in ourselves. We just think we're a dirty bowl. God goes, no, no. Jesus goes, I, I see something more. And he, and he takes those things out and he goes, there's something much more beautiful here. And so he takes the dirt and the grime and he begins to cleanse us and he begins to take away and wipe down all this dirt that has been built up all your shame your guilt all your sadness and all the times where you feel like you're not good enough that no one cares or that no one's listening that you don't matter it begins to clean because he sees something See something more than what you were. He takes and he begins to cleanse all of us. And he begins to reveal the true beauty of what this bowl actually is. It's not just a dirty old bowl, it's crystal. It's beautifully made. It shines. And he says, this is actually what you are. You're not that dirty bowl that just holds dog toys. You're beautiful crystal. But he just doesn't stop there. He reveals our true nature, yes. His work on the cross reveals who we really are. That's what you are. You're this beautiful bowl. But he doesn't leave us there either. Because he says, yes, that's who you are. But more than that, I'm actually going to turn you into what you were meant to do. And he begins to pour into you his life, his love, his grace, his forgiveness, his goodness, and his kindness to you. And he pours into you and he says, now you can actually be the thing you were meant to do. As I've poured into you, now you can pour into others. And you can help reveal who I am to other people. This is who you were meant to be. Not the dirty old bowl that was holding the dog toys. The beautiful crystal, full of his presence and his life, so that 
you can then be an outpouring to others. This is what Peter's trying to get them to know and to understand. This is your identity. This is who you are. His work on the cross, as he says, cleanses us. Cleanses us from our sins when you obeyed his truth. And there's always a so that. So that's movement one. Do you understand and in your gratefulness and love do you recognize what Jesus did for you? This is what he did for you. And in our gratefulness of that, because I am a new creation, because I am revealed to be the person God created me to be through his love and his sacrifice, in that gratefulness, I will work my hardest to live an honorable, holy life to him. But there's always a so that. There's always a so that. Movement two, movement two is about what you are now. What you are. You used to be this dirty bowl. And God has cleansed you of that. So what are you now? What is the next step? In verse 2, he says, get rid of all evil behavior. Be done with deceit, hypocrisy, jealousy, and all, kind, all unkind speech. This is the desire to honor God with our lives because of his sacrifice. I will work and live in such a way that honors him, living a holy life. And then he, he shifts his topic a little bit. And he starts talking about building and building blocks. And in verse 4, he says, You are coming to Christ, who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for great honor. And you are the living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. What's more, you are his holy priest. So he begins to use this architecture language, these building blocks, that Christ is the cornerstone. He is the chief building block by which God then begins to build other blocks, which is us so that we can then be in partnership with Jesus. And he makes this interesting claim that, that uh, um, he says he was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for great honor. The church is precious to God because Christ is precious to God. And when I say the church, I mean you. You are precious to God because Christ was precious to God. And God is building his church through these living stones, us. He's building his community with the chief stone being Christ. However, though, if Christ was rejected by people, it should come to no surprise to us who are followers of him that we also may be rejected. Now, remember, he's talking to real people who feel rejected, who are literally running away from their homes. And he's reminding them, encouraging, you're a part of something much bigger something much more important. And so the suffering you face now is just a blip on the road. It's just a dip in the road, a little pothole you go over compared to where we're going as God's people. He quotes Isaiah, Psalms, um, again in Isaiah, um, and he narrows down in verse 9 of, of chapter 2. And this is, this is what I want to hit for movement 2. He says... You are God's chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. Do you hear that? Some of you need to print that out and put that on your mirror every morning. You are God's chosen people. You are his chosen people. You are a royal priesthood, right? A holy nation, 
He's calling them into their greater identity as priests. What does a priest do? Right? A priest is someone who mediates between the humans and the deity. Right? You got the temple and the priest sits there and he takes the sacrifice and offers it to the God and the God's happy and they go back out. Yep, we're good to go here. Right? He's the mediator. Okay? Do you hear Peter saying to you, you are now priests. As you've accepted the reality of God making you into who you were meant to be, you now onboard this identity as priests. That it's your job now to show the world who God is. Your job now is to step out and be the image of God to others. To show people what God's love, his goodness, his forgiveness looks like through you. Through you. Do you understand, like, God's not just going to reveal, like, here I am, now you can believe. That's not how he chose to work in history. As much as we would love for that to happen. And as much as that causes people to leave faith because it doesn't happen, the reality is is that God always chooses to work through humans to reveal who he is to the world. Always has. Even to the point of becoming a human himself in Jesus Christ to show the world this is what it looks like when heaven comes to earth. And then he comes in us, pours into us to say, now it's your turn to show the world. This is what it looks like when heaven comes to earth. That's the calling of all of us. You are priests. So, for Peter, movement one and movement two can be summarized with this. You have been rescued out of death and into life. This is Peter talking to these people. Movement one, you've been rescued out of death and into life. Okay? Or a bowl analogy. Movement two, as a result... Now that you've been rescued out of death into life, as a result, you are now participants in the grand narrative of God redeeming and restoring all of his creation. You are now participants in that story. You're not just reading about the story. You are active participants when you accept Jesus Christ. So he's getting these people to say, there's a story that God's telling You're on the run right now. You're in hiding right now, but there's a story that God's telling and he's going to use you to tell it. Remember what Christ did. Get ready to tell the story. And now we're on to movement three. What now? So what do I do with this? Okay? What do I do with this information? We need to understand that we're a community that lives in a foreign kingdom and must live in such a way that God can be seen through our Lives. In verse 11, he says, Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then, even if they accuse you of doing wrong, which they did, right? Eating, eating babies, okay? Um, when they accuse you for doing wrong, um, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. This word temporary residence, we often think of it in terms of like the heaven, right? Uh, we're not meant for here, we're heaven. This is literally, like they are literally living in foreign lands, temporary residence, like this, they, they are running from their home. So there's this literal aspect to what he's saying here, not simply a spiritual truth, although that 
does exist as well. And Peter is encouraging them to be God's people where they are at. And as a result, watch how God works in those around them by their example. God wants them to be the people of God. They are not meant to live in isolation. They're not meant as they have been transformed, renewed, filled by God's love, grace, and forgiveness is not just to pat myself on the back and say, yep, I'm here. Good job, Joe. It's so that you can be an example of who God is to others. And he's saying, you're on the run route. You need to be ready to live. Live my example to the people you're around. Peter's saying, it's time to get to work. It's interesting when the Israelites were taken into captivity. They were conquered by Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. A portion of the Israelites were taken as slaves into Babylon. And now they're living there, right? They're living there. And they could get angry, which I'm sure they were. They were taken from their homes violently, okay? Their temple burned to the ground. They could have revolted, right? That little remnant could have just started rising up in Babylon in captivity, But here's, listen to what God asks them to do. As foreigners living in a land that's not their own, in captivity and slavery, this is what God tells them to do out of the words of Jeremiah chapter 29 verse 4. Starts out this way. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says to all the captives he has exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem. So this is God's words. Build homes. Plan to stay. Plant gardens and eat the food they produce. Marry and have children. Then find spouses for them so that you may have many grandchildren. Multiply. Do not dwindle away. And work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. Peter's riffing on this idea. You feel like foreigners and outcasts. It's time to hunker in and get to work. Pray for the city. Pray for the welfare of the city. As it goes, you will go. It's time to be the example of the living God where you're at. Where you're at. And the next set of texts that we're going to go through in the coming weeks is Peter showing them and talking to them about what that looks like. How do I actually live as the people of God called to a holy life in the midst of an environment that is not my own and, and suffering and trials and persecutions come, how do I do this? What does it look like for the people of God to be the people of God in the places they are? And that's what he be, begins to unpack for the rest of the letter. But for now, understand that how you live matters. How you actually live matters. Even though they may be in caves now, this audience, they were never called to live in isolation. How they live matters. And I want to close, and I appreciate your patience with me this morning. We won't draw out this closing too long. In the midst of suffering and trial, Peter's reminding them of a few things. Number one, you are God's chosen people rescued out of sin and into life through the work of Christ and his sacrifice. That's number one out of these movements. Number two, he goes on to say, because of that, as God's people, you now play a role in representing 
or being royal priests of God to others. So now you, you have a part to play. You, you can't sit idly by. If, if all you do is come to church, you're missing the point. You're missing the point. You, you have a job, and it's not just about being in ministry here. It's about are you actually representing God to others? Does your life reflect his goodness, his grace, his forgiveness, his love, his kindness? Does your life do that? Are you representing God? In light of this information, we must live in such a way that even the troubling times, people can see the hope we have and give glory to God. Are we not in troubling times? Yeah. Albeit different than what they experienced, sure. We're in troubling times. Does your life represent the glory of God in the midst of it? Can people look at your life and go, how is it? How, how are you sane right now? How are you not going crazy? How are you not mad? How are you not angry? They're looking at your life. They're going, there's something different there. There's a peace that this person has. I don't understand it because I'm scared. They have a peace. They know something that I don't. What is that? What is that? As we prepare to take communion, I just ask you to wrestle for, for a minute here. These concepts and ideas, these movements, no doubt maybe there's some of you that haven't considered or remembered or you've forgotten the goodness of, of Christ's sacrifice and work and how he cleanses you and makes you whole. And you need to sit in that and begin to say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for, for making me new, for rescuing me from sin and death and cleansing me from all unrighteousness. Thank you. And in that gratefulness, God, I, I will choose to honor you with my life because of what you did. Some of you need to recognize who you are. You just are existing right now. You're just existing. And Peter's gonna go and, hey, uh, no, not an option. You're actually a part of the story. So what part are you playing? What part are you gonna play? And lastly, some of you need to recognize that where you're at may be right where God wants you because you have something to reveal of God in that situation. So sit in it. Don't be in a rush to get out of it. Be forged by it into what and who God has made you to be. Would you pray with me over those things and just take a minute and let that sit and let the Spirit begin to speak to us. Jesus was betrayed he had a meal with his closest followers and in that meal he instituted something that would last well 
this day, Lord's Supper. And in it, we're told that, that Jesus says that we do this as often as we remember him, which what we're here to do is remember him. He took the bread, he broke it, he said, this is my body, which is broken for you, represents my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Remember what I did for you. Take the bread. He then took a cup, poured his drink, lifted it, blessed it, and said, this is my blood. Poured out for the forgiveness of sins. When you take this, remember me. Father, we are so thankful for your sacrifice. We are so thankful that you laid down your life so that we can live again, so that we can see what it looks like when heaven comes to earth through your sacrifice, your death, your burial, and your resurrection. We thank you, God, that we can then be participants in seeing you work in the lives of others and bringing your kingdom here wherever we go. And we ask, God, that as we move forward, we would see that we actually have a role to play and showing and revealing who God is through our actions and our lives. And I pray, God, that we would take that seriously. And we would do it because we're so thankful for what you did for us. We love you, Lord. We thank you. And we ask, God, as we leave this place, we would carry our identity forward, who we are in you, what you've done for us, what that means for us, and where we go from here. In Jesus' name.